Good morning. I'm, I'm Kyle. Kyle Kuzik. I'm here. I'm a member of the church here, and I'm here to uh, lead you guys today in the reading and preaching of God's word. Uh, so thank you very much. It's a huge pleasure of mine to be up here uh, before you all doing this, uh, standing in place of our, our pastor, John, who is away getting a little bit of uh, rest and vacation this week. Um, kids, except for the oldest group, kids, you may now be dismissed. Um, we look forward to what you learn in Sunday school, and I thank you for the teachers who are teaching them today. What a blessing they are to our church. Thank you. And just a reminder, parents, if your kids are going downstairs, make sure they're checked in. We've had a, a string of not checking our kids in, so we want to make sure that's done. All right, we're going to take a little break from the book of Genesis today, and we're going to be working out of uh, the Psalms, specifically Psalm 46, the 46th Psalm in which that last hymn that we just sung is, uh, the hymn is well based out of that psalm. It was, it was a huge blessing that Melanie would choose to sing that for us. Thank you. A little background on, on me preaching a psalm. It was uh, seven or eight years ago when my family and I were attending church at uh, Redemption Calgary North that Pastor Trevor started a journey in, in equipping some men with the ability to preach. He, he started by teaching us how to exegete the text, how to dig into it further and deeper, uh, and, and just work through text, uh, preparing for preaching. And then that, following that, he gave everyone the opportunity who is in that to preach a psalm. And he, he called that a summer series, uh, the Summer of Psalms. I, I rejected his offer at the time uh, for a few different reasons. I was essentially terrified of doing it uh, in a few different ways. But I knew in my heart at that time that, that I would eventually be um, standing before a congregation, bringing them the word of God. Uh, he had put that on my heart. So it's a, it's a huge pleasure that I'm here to, to preach a psalm to you guys today. Now, in choosing the 46th psalm, it, it, it was a choice of mine to take it and, and go with the 46th. It logically... What I should have done is probably work through one, two, three, four, like verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, but I stood under the preaching of Craig Ware at, at Calgary North, a uh, blessed man, a friend of John and I's, and uh, a gifted pastor. So he's already preached Psalm 1. And then through talking to John, Psalm 2 has already been done, and Psalm 3. Um, so I had the opportunity to do Psalm 4, but instead I, I cherry picked Psalm 46 because it, it's one of my favorites, it's, it's near to my heart. I've, uh, I've used it to encourage uh, members of my small group, small groups previously, uh, just members who are going through difficult times. Uh, this psalm is, is an excellent psalm to, to turn back to. And it's actually quite paralleled a little bit with Psalm 4. So if preaching is on anybody's heart in here, which I know it might be for some of you, I'm going to pave the way through Psalm 4 and you guys can uh, just kind of follow through into that. The Psalm 46 is incredibly rich in, in many different ways. Contained in the psalm are three verses of confession of God's holy character and his eternal attributes. 
we have five verses of theophany. A theophany is a character of God that's very tangible uh, to, to humans. And then we have three verses of prophetic oracle and blessings for the audience. So this is simply just a, the poetic breakdown of the psalm. Now contained within its holy writings, it has reference links to 10 other psalms, at least 10 other psalms, if not, if not more. Uh, the one Corey worked through with us to, to this morning and called worship, I could see links to it there. I, I have no doubt that it, it has fingers stretching into almost all of the psalms. It has reference to 17 books of the Old Testament uh, with a reference into nearly every prophetic book. And it has reference to what I have listed here is two New Testament books, but even Jared and leading us in prayer this morning uh, brought up a reference that I hadn't even caught in Romans 8. Uh, so we can see at least three references in New Testament books. I, I have no doubt, again, that this psalm reaches out into many of them. It has a direct quote from Exodus and is directly quoted in Acts 4 as Peter stands before a uh, congregation. So its, it's reach is spectacular. Uh, furthermore, to quote the great Charles Spurgeon, he's titled this psalm, The Song of Holy Confidence. And this psalm is also known as Luther's Psalm. Uh, as it was the favorite psalm of the great theologian Martin Luther himself. So I'm going to read you two quotes to help us set the stage for the day. And the first is from Martin Luther. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. So that's his quote regarding this psalm. And it's to this reason um, that I, I've preached this psalm to my own heart. Uh, I've preached this psalm to the hearts of my friends when they're discouraged, brothers and sisters when they're in need. And I've been encouraged as I've studied through the psalm just to find out that I am among good company in doing so as we lift our eyes to our Savior, Lord Jesus, in troubles. Now, the second quote I have here is from S.W. Charles in his book, Hymn Writers and Their Hymns, and it's regarding the theologian Martin Luther and his love for this 46th Psalm. And the quote goes, Luther and his companions, with all their bold readiness for danger and death in the cause of truth, had times when their feelings were akin to those of a divine singer who said, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? But in such hours of unflinching, in such hours, the unflinching reformer would cheerily say to his friend Melanchthon, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And they could sing it in Luther's own character version. A sure stronghold our God is he, a timely shield and weapon. Our help he'll be and set us free from every ill can happen. And were the world with devils filled, all eager to devour us, our souls to fear shall little yield. They cannot overpower us. Bow your heads today with me as we pray. Gracious Father in heaven, our Lord God, you are so wonderful, miraculous. You are the almighty God. 
Thank you that we can come before you today, study this psalm, study your word, God, as a congregation, as a body of believers, as family, Father. Thank you so much. I, I pray that you would, you would move through us by the Holy Spirit in revealing uh, your truth to us, Father, your character to us, and that we would uh, leave here today knowing you more, that we would leave here today uh, stronger Christians, Father, and that we would, our faith would be grown in you and in Christ Jesus. God, we pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you. So open up your Bibles today to the 46th Psalm, and we're going to read it together. Um, if you need a Bible, put up your hand. Jared's ready with a stack of them. Kids, if you didn't bring your Bible, feel free. If you need a Bible, take this one. It's, it's a church gift to you. If you know somebody who, who needs a Bible, take it. Um, it is so important that we have God's word open in front of us. It's your guys' job as a congregation to hold me accountable to what I'm preaching. It's also important that we follow along so you guys are able to discern and learn and see for yourselves. And if anyone wants to further discuss this psalm with me after something they see, a reference they caught, or just want to praise God with me, I'd be happy to do that. Come find me after service. All right, let's read it together. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I would sing that for you, but I would, it probably wouldn't be very pleasant to your ears, but it is a song, I promise. So who am I to go different than the great theologian Charles Spurgeon? So therefore, I've stuck with the tried and true title of uh, the Song of Holy Confidence. It's my heart's desire, as I prayed for us already uh, in prayer, that the body, as we study the psalm today, we leave here with a greater understanding of, of who God is, his will for us, the church, and a greater personal confidence in our role as blessed children of God. So let's, let's dive into the text. Now, first off, to start off any psalm, above it you have the title of the psalm, which has been put there by man. Uh, so the title, God is our fortress, is, is a title. It's no different than throughout all of scripture. You have titles of portions written there. That is not God's inerrant word. Sometimes it's a good title that leads us into the passage. Sometimes it can be a little misleading. Uh, next, you have the chapter number, also put there by man, and this is all of the psalms. Obviously, the ability to organize, it allows us the ability to organize reference psalms, just like verses, chapters and verses. Then you have the intro, 
And this can generally give us an idea of the author of the psalm or who it was written to or what its general context is. And the 46th psalm reads, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So there is no dispute about this psalm. It is a song that is written to be sung by none other than the choir master himself. A most talented and blessed man, but not only a regular choir master. This choir master is of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, if you look into your Old Testament, were a Levitical line of priestly families whose sole purpose was to make music and song and worship worthy of the Most High God. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were the lineage set aside by God to perform all the various priestly tasks, and, and the line of Korah came out of the Levites. So it was their role to handle uh, so many different things within, within pertaining to God in the temple. And so the, the Korathites, the Korahites were in charge of songs, musical instruments. So these men were set aside as chosen people, and this song was to be of the highest praise to God, and was to be handled and sung with the most highest regard. So that's what, that's what that title contains. Uh, secondly, it's said to be set to the Alamoth. Now, there is some uncertainty as to what the Alamoth was among scholars, but it's generally agreed that it is a, it is a tune, a very beautiful, uh, some commentary said a high-pitched tune. Um, it, it's, it's pleasing, and it was a known tune at the time. But regardless, it is a song of high praise, and that is no doubt why Luther himself used many of these verses of this psalm in his hymn that he wrote and, and sang uh, primarily on his way to the Diet at Worms, and that's titled, A Strong Fortress is Our God, and later it was renditioned as, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and that was the fourth song that we sung today. And then we come into the text itself, verse 1. The text is, is easily broken into three nice parts for us, as you can see earlier. And section one would be verses one through three. And I have titled this, The Presence of God in Infinite Troubles. Let me read it for us again so it's fresh in our minds. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then it ends with Selah. So it's in these first two sections, so verses 1 through 7, and those two sections there of the text that we have two major confessions that I alluded to earlier, and all of the theophany. So verse 1 starts us off with a very real and true confession, and this sets the foundation for our text. This sets a foundation for our faith. It puts us firmly planted. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength. Amen? Like, that is, that is foundational. What or who else could we possibly turn to? Like, what else is there? but God himself. Who would we turn to in times of trouble other than our sovereign God? And the author directs our eyes immediately to God in this psalm. So this isn't, this isn't a personal or a private statement either, if you notice. He directs the eyes of a larger group here by saying, God is our 
refuge and strength. Uh, the idea here is that this is, this is set for a larger group. This is set for the, the capital C church, the church body globally, or at the time here was is the Israelites, God's chosen people. So where do we go when we need help? Kids, are you going to help me out with this? Go ahead, Rowan. God, amen, that's right. Who do we turn to when we're confused, anxious, frightened, or stressed? Go ahead, Logan. God, amen. So none other than God himself. Verse 1, right there. And if Ecclesiastes has taught me anything, uh, through preaching through that, the rest of what the world has to offer us is, is vanity, havel, it's fleeting, it's worthless, it does not satisfy. But what God has to offer is refuge and strength. And the strength listed here is not like, there's a strong man who can lift anything. This, the strength that they're talking about is unbreakable. It's an impenetrable fortress wall. This is bomb shelter style of strength that is indestructible. And not only does he provide refuge and strength, but here it says that he is a very present help in trouble. So the biblical term for this character trait of God, um, anyone can help me out, kids, you can help me out with this too. What is it, what's the term when God is everywhere? He's very present. Omnipresent, thank you. Omnipresence, exactly. So that's a character trait of God that we see here right here. He's a very present help in trouble. God is everywhere at all times. Believers, he is always with you and is always watching over you. So if you're ever feeling doubtful of God's presence and love in your life, all you need to do is simply commit this first verse to your memory and you have all that you need uh, for confidence in, in our God. Right there in verse 1. It is awesome. He, he sets our eyes directly to God who is our confidence. And there's no reason why. This is why Luther titled this a song of holy confidence. So, but here's the icing on the cake for this. The word trouble here as well, in my opinion, in other translations, is, is translated as tribulations. And here they have it in the singular, in the Hebrew, it's, it's actually a plural form of the word, tribulations, not singular. So it amazes me when I constantly dig into God's word just a little bit further and find out these, these beautiful little nuggets that the author, uh, the prophet who wrote this, leaves for us. This was likely written after, after a great battle. Uh, it has reference, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the author here signifies that God is our very present, real refuge, strength, and helper in our tribulations, plural. He's always with us throughout all of our tribulations. The almighty creator of heavens and earth is present with us in all of our troubles. That is... To me, that's fantastic. It's such an amazing confession to set our eyes on in our faith in the Lord and just reinforce our faith in the Lord. So in the text here, now verses 2 through 6, we have the theophany, the presence of God, Emmanuel, which is, which is then ended with another confession in verse 7 for us to hold on tight to. So poetically, we have two confessions, a theophany and a sandwich right in between. It's fantastic. So verse 2 starts with a therefore. 
And when we see a therefore, it's right to ask ourselves, what's the therefore therefore? It points us back to the confession in verse 1, because God is a very present help in trouble. Take a look. It says it right here. Therefore, we will not fear. This is a statement. We will not fear. We could simply end today's lesson right there. <laughs> verse 1 and 2, God is our help, our refuge, our strength. He's there presently, always. We will not fear. But the author decides, obviously, to expound this thought further, uh, this thought of trouble or tribulations, and he uses some poetic examples to amplify our thoughts through four those statements. So you take a look, it says, it's going to say, though, 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 though. These are kind of like a what if. Well, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? Is he still our savior? Is he, is he still our refuge and strength? Take a look. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So the imagery of these mountains is referring to essentially the most stable and strong establishments. So picture something, if you were to picture something that you just think wouldn't ever be moved, and we have a beautiful picture because we know the Rocky Mountains, what do you picture? It's, it's a mountain. It's, it's a rock that nobody can lift. It can never be dug out. The mountains are firm and stable and strong. So in our times, well, how about some of the things that we thought were the most stable? Um, a well-established big box store like Kmart. Never thought it would go under, right? It's gone. The housing market, you think that's stable? It's not a mountain. Even well-established, mature, and affluent governments, you think that they'll never crumble or fall? None of these are outside the arm of control of the Almighty God. They are not. The earth gives way, the psalmist says here. Now, this is an immediate picture of the earth being turned upside down. Everything you know in your world is turned upside down. The earth has given way. What would our reaction be if this were to happen? Would it be fear? By no means, brothers and sisters, it should not be fear, though the earth should give way. So how about the oceans that are depicted here? The roaring of the waters and the foaming of the seas. It says, even the mountains themselves tremble at the power and might of the waters. Should we tremble at their swelling? Should the people of Israel cower and cry and hide when the enemies of God are surrounding them on all fronts and they're established for war, ready to crush them? By no means. There's a reference here to Exodus 14, 13 and 14, and this is where the quote is directly pulled from in this psalm. You can write that down, or you can turn with me. Exodus 14, 13 and 14. I'm going to read it for you. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. This is referring to uh, when they're standing on the banks of the Nile. Moses has the people there in the Exodus standing on the banks of the Nile. He has enemies behind him, the Egyptians ready to slaughter the people, and he has a raging river in front of him that looks impenetrable, unable to cross. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today shall never, you shall never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So should we tremble and cower when a government that we don't agree with is established or when our business ventures fail or our bills are overwhelming us? By no means, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't fear. In the words of John Calvin himself regarding this portion, says, God is always ready to deliver them. Nay, is also armed with invincible power. Invincible power. Like what, what better confidence should we have of our assurance of faith than the Holy Spirit himself, God with us, that we received the believers received at Pentecost this unlimited, invincible power, this gift sent to us because of the death and resurrection of our blessed Savior by the Holy Spirit himself. Like This should give us confidence, believers. Now verses 4 through 7 here introduce to us an even deeper level of intimacy uh, as if this isn't enough already, but a deeper level of intimacy of the presence of God in the believer. And I've titled this second portion here, The Presence of God Eternal. And this, this portion is so rich. So let's read it again so it's fresh in our minds. There is a river, this is verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So before we carry on a little bit, I want to take a pause and, and backtrack a little bit just a hair. Take note of the word Selah written in our Bibles. It's right here at the end of verse 3. You see it two more times as it breaks up our sections. The word Selah is actually used to denote a pause. And this isn't just like a little tiny pause that, that Corey or I took when we were reading it. If, if I pause the actual amount of time I probably should, then I would, I would go way over here. We would never leave here today, which should be okay with me, but I'm sure we have things to do. Um, selah is used to denote the pause and it's supposed to be a significant pause as an opportunity for deep reflection when we're reading or as an, as an example at the end of verse 3 poetically we take a pause to reflect on the imagery of the whole world around us being turned upside down so the author, the author puts it in here so if you were to, if you were to close your eyes in close your eyes if you need to, picture the mountains being uprooted, the rocks and the foundations of everything all around it crumbling apart as it falls into the water, uh, into the oceans around it. You picture the waves of the raging seas as the mountains fall into them, and then the wave that's created after the water that is about to crush you, to crush everything around you. We've, all, we've probably all seen newsreels or YouTube videos of the tsunamis and, and things are created. But there you are protected in your refuge, protected by his strength. That's, that's the pause there. It gives you an opportunity. For the musician, so this is written as a song, for the musician, 
or the performer. It's, it was an actual opportunity for them to stop, retune their instruments to make sure that they are producing at their optimal performance. This is a holy song to the, to the highest God. It's an opportunity for them to stop, catch their breath in order to prepare for worship as they continue on in their song uh, to God in, in peak performance. So when you see this in scripture, take, take a minute, I encourage you, take a minute, catch your breath, slow down, steady your mind on the text, pause, pray, reflect. That's an opportunity, it's put there for a purpose. So in verses four through six, as we carry on back into the text, we have the climax of this theophany. Verse four reads, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. So I think, I imagine your mind can go several places here as you think about holy habitation of the most high, uh, a river, a river of God. So let's see if, if you're tracked with one of them. We kind of have to wonder, what, what was the author's intent here? Whenever we're looking at scripture, we look at the authorial intent, the AI. Um, what's his intent in this verse? And again, do we turn our eyes to God? Well, it's packed, it's packed with tons here. It's wondrous imagery of a river here has reference, as I said before, to several things. Uh, but first, let's talk about the present. So why would the author use the imagery of a river here? And that's not our present. That's the author's present time. Well, the city of Jerusalem, also known as the city of God or of his people, the Israelites, is where God's temple was. And this is where God tabernacled, um, where he was said to have dwelled in the holy of holies within his temple, uh, the innermost part of the temple. That was the Holy of Holies. That's where God was said to have tabernacled with his people. In times of war or trouble, any city for this matter, was said to have been able to only hold out for as long as they have a supply of water. Now, the city of Jerusalem was fed by the river Shiloam, which filled the upper pools, the lower pools, and several pools throughout the city. And it was a constant, steady, gentle stream of water that provided Jerusalem with water all the time. So here's the constant, constant gentle supply. This river here is said to make glad the city of God. This river that is supplied by God is a constant physical um, supply for the city of Jerusalem. Now this is contrasted by a statement in Isaiah 8, 6 through 8. And I'm not going to read it for you guys. You guys can write that down. Uh, but it is, a, it is a contrast of, a, of an adulterous people who wanted more than just these gentle streams. And, and in, I, in the book of Isaiah, he breaks it down. That's Isaiah 8, 6 through 8. And the adulterous people were not satisfied by the gentle flow of the shalom. And instead, they turned their faith and trust to stronger, deeper waters and more abundant sources. And if you read it, they reaped what they sowed. Some other theologians have broken this statement down into a spiritual understanding, which I think is is fantastic. It's what we should be doing throughout all of scripture. And it is understood that this flowing river, spiritually speaking, is the covenant of grace. This river is a covenant of grace that is constant and gentle in our lives and is depicted by the holy habitation of the Most 
high. And the streams that are depicted here make glad the promises, or that make glad the city, are the promises fulfilled by God himself. So we have a constant flow of grace and these streams that make glad the holy habitation, which is us, the believer, um, is the promises fulfilled by God himself. So God has tabernacled with us, the believer, individually by the Holy Spirit. That is fantastic. We are living temples of the Most High God. In a private sense, this scripture talks to us right there. Like this is truth. When this is this is truth. When the earth seems to be turned upside down, this constant steady flow of grace in our lives is our assurance. Now you also have grace flowing as a church, its provisions, and then you have a global sense. This capital C church, the local church, and and the the worldly church is it's fantastic imagery here. Now, two other references I'm going to make note of are important to understand, and we're going to look at, at the reference this river holds to past events and the reference that this river holds to future events. So first, to past events, we're going to travel all the way back to Genesis 2 uh, in the Garden of Eden. So before there was any water, so this is Genesis 2. We're going to pick up in verse 10, Genesis 2, verse 10. So before there was any water that caused the plants or everything to go to grow, God caused a mist to rise, and then in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then as we see verse 10 reads, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So there is no doubt in my mind that the constant provisions of God in the garden are also referenced here in the 46th Psalm. The author draws from that eternal imagery of a river that supplies water for all of life in the garden, just like he supplies a constant flow of grace for all the believers, everything we need. And now as a reference to the future of things to come, we're going to go to the opposite end of the Bible. We're going to go all the way to the last chapter, uh, which is Revelation 22. We're going to read Revelation 22, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it. You don't have to flip there. You can write it down if you want or follow along. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. A picture of God and Jesus the Lamb supplying everything that is needed for us in the future, in the present, and in the past. Like holy supplication, everything. 
Or to put it more plainly, he's providing for our needs always. That should give us confidence. So come back with me now, back to Psalm 46. I don't mark my Bible, so I don't, don't cheat. I give us, give us all time to work through it together. <laughs> like I write in it, but I just don't mark my pages. Verse 5 gives us more assurance as we continue on this song of confidence and praise. So look back with me at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So God, Jesus our Savior, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, they are our assurance that we have a strong refuge in times of trouble. We will not be moved. This is true in a very personal sense. As a believer, you will not be moved. You have nothing to fear. This is true also in a corporate sense. God is the foundation of which this church, the, the capital C, the global church, is, is founded on. And that this private church body stands. He has guaranteed that no matter what happens, his church, his people will remain set aside for his glory and for his good providence. So furthermore, the psalmist states here that God will help us when morning dawns. Now, to look back at history when the psalm was written, historically, a city or a town or a village that was under siege um, the most dangerous for t time for them was at dawn. As the saying goes, the night is always darkest before sunrise. And it was at its most vulnerable because that's when the enemies would attack at dawn. Now, how true is this also for us, privately as believers, personally? When are we most vulnerable? When are our minds ready to set the pace for the day? It's, it's as soon as we wake up. As soon as we, we open our eyes and we stir in our beds, our minds pick up and they are vulnerable. So what's your tendency in the morning? What do you turn to first? How awesome it would be if I could honestly say that my first move was to turn over in my bed, reach for my Bible, and that's, that's the paper copy, not the electronic copy that is so easily distracting. If I were to reach over for my Bible and start my day right there in prayer and in praise, or to roll over, kiss my wife, and pray with her that God would clothe us in his righteous armor and prepare us for the day. Believers, that's where we should be setting the foundation of our day as we wake up when we are at our most vulnerable. The enemy isn't going to wait for you. Believe me when I say that his fiery arrows are aimed at us already before we wake up, ready to spring an attack. At the crack of dawn, the second you open your eyes and your mind jolts, so believers, who will you turn to for refuge in the second we need him most in the morning? It's God Almighty. 
and look a little further as, as it states here. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. That's a direct pull from Psalm, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? He utters his voice and the earth melts. As the heathens rage and plot destruction, as the kingdoms shake and work out their violence towards the church and its people, who comes to our aid yet again? The Lord of hosts with the power of his voice. It says here, he utters his voice. God simply has the ability to speak and to melt the earth away with the sound of his voice. Oh, what immeasurable power. Like, why do we even consider turning to worldly comforts and put our confidence in those things when we have this immeasurable, invincible power on our side? How utterly futile it is to be an enemy of the Lord. So if you're here today and you haven't accepted this free gift of faith in our Lord Jesus that is freely given by the Lord of all heavens and earth and extended to you, do that right now. Now is an opportunity. Take this moment, bow down before him in repentance and reverence of who he is. It is a terrifying day to stand on the opposite side of the Lord our God as his enemy. As Jared led us in prayer this morning, he referenced Romans 8. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you're on God's side, it doesn't matter who's over on the other side. But if you're on that other side, I'm telling you is a terrifying thought to stand opposite of the Lord and his en as his enemy. Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25. 30 and 31. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, 30 and 31. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout, like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. All the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. If you haven't confessed faith in Jesus and repented of your sins today, the, the sins that you've committed before a holy and just God, then you are the wicked. You're his enemy. You're not for him. You are actually against him by your sin nature. And if you want to know more about, about what this entails for your life, about committing your life to Jesus, uh, come find me after church. Melanie and Corey are going to be up here for prayer afterwards. They would be happy to talk with you, to pray for you, uh, to break this truth down for you as you enter into a relationship with God. Do that. Now, what's most terrifying to me in this portion is that this is God's wrath and judgment on display. Look at it. By the breath of his voice, the earth will melt away. 
And so rightfully so, the psalmist ends this portion with another, the confession, the confession we talked about sandwiching together, of terrific closeness and terrifying judgment. With a confession of God's perfect and paradoxical character. Take a look at verse 7. We're giving two names of God. And let's look closely at them. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So in the 46th Psalm here, there's actually several names listed for God, if you haven't caught that already. In verses 1, 5, and 11, we have God properly written. God proper. In verse 4, you have the Most High. In verse 8, you have the Lord in all caps, which we've learned through by listening to Pastor John, that this is Yahweh. And then in verses 7 and 11, you have a repetitive verses. These are repetitive confessions. You have the Lord of hosts and the God of Jacob. Of all of these names, the most terrifying is the Lord of hosts. doesn't sound terrifying until you look at the actual meaning of it, its translation of it. This means Yahweh of armies. And this isn't, this isn't like our world's armies. This is innumerable and destructive armies of heaven. This is an army of angels that are ready to be dispatched at the whisper or the breath of the commander of armies, the Lord God. At which 185,000 men, as written in our historical document here, have been slaughtered at the hand of a single of those angels. Terrifying to me. <laughs> Yahweh of armies is with us, it says, and juxtaposed to that, he is also the God of Jacob. This is his fatherly side. God meaning Elohim, a very personal name of God. And then it's emphasized by the lineage of Jacob, our father, the father of all the Israelites. He is our heavenly father. A great and mighty commander of armies that's with us and a tender father who knows each one of us intimately and one that we can run to as if he were a fortress or a garrison when we are in need. Like those, those two opposites are amazing. And then the author says, Salah. Like pause. Let that sink in. Let this character of God sink in for just a little bit. He is a river who's extended the covenant of grace to us when we didn't deserve it. His provisions are our gladness and joy. He has tabernacled with his people, and he will not allow them to be moved. He is our help when we need it most. He allows the heathens to rage and the wicked to plot against us, and in our distress, he causes them all to flee leaving us without a blemish because he has clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus. And then the prophet here reminds us of his power and his tenderness that is beheld simply in his names. Like, oh, what an appropriate selah, a pause, a refreshing breath as we reflect on all of those truths contained there within. So as if that wasn't enough, the prophet then takes us on a world journey 
to now bask in the reverence of the Almighty. So we're going to read on here in verses 8 through 11 as we, as we begin to close this psalm. And here, verses 8 through 11, I've titled this portion, The Presence of God on Earth. So back into Psalm 46, The Presence of God on Earth. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist here has invited the believer first to come and witness the mighty work of Yahweh, how he has brought desolations on the earth. So this first verse is, a, is an invitation for the believer. So turn with me to Second Chronicles 20, and we're going to see kind of the reference of which scholars believe that this, this psalm is kind of written out of. The portion here is 2 Chronicles 21 through 25. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to pick us up in verses 18 through 25. Um, but Jehoshaphat, the, the leader of, of Israelites, stood in the assembly of the Lord, and he was pleading with God as he and his people were surrounded by the nation's armies. So there was to be, on that day, destruction for God's people. Nations were all around them. But as we pick up in verse 18 through 25, and we see the Lord of hosts comes to their rescue. So verse 18, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. This is them singing their praise. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies laying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. Just imagine for a moment, peeking over the wall after going to bed expecting to be destroyed in the morning. 
expecting that your people, instead of seeing dead bodies, would be seeing destruction of their own people. They peek over the wall and they see destruction of their enemies as far as the eye can see. Now back in Psalm 46, as he invites the believers to come witness and see, the word behold here, so it's, I'm in Isaiah. Psalm 46, come behold the works of the Lord. The word behold here isn't a rejoicing over death and destruction, but rather it is a moment to stand in awe and a moment to stand in reverence of the terrifying and mighty power of the Lord our God. Now, these days we don't have to go very far to witness or behold destruction. We live in a broken world uh, that has war all over the news. There's famine. There's natural disasters that are happening nonstop. We, there are whole groups of people who are wiped off the face of the earth. There are broken families. There are divided churches. There are torn marriages. Like we live, we live in a world where the brokenness is unending. Destruction is all around us. But as a believer, we recognize that the Lord our God holds the power to end all wars. And when he does on the day of judgment... All wars, believe me, all wars, all battles, all destruction will end. And we see that finality here in verse 9 as well. It has a sense of finality to the battle. It was also a Roman custom in the day to set fire to the weapons of the enemies after the battle had been won. So here we see in, in here that the sufficiency of our, we see the sufficiency of our supreme God in all that he possesses because he says here he doesn't need to take the plunder or spoil for himself he doesn't need any provisions for God's armies for his armies he breaks the bow and he shatters the spear and he burns the chariots with fire our Lord God needs nothing of this earth he needs nothing that we can give to him and then the next verse here is the most misused, out-of-context verse in this psalm. And it was actually the misuse of this verse that, that drove me to study and, and to look at this psalm so richly. I have heard this verse used to calm the soul and to cause a person to reflect on how good God is. I've heard it said with such a positive tone that you would, you would think that the person saying it would imagine that person to close their eyes and see rainbows and gumdrops and lollipops as the world just is fantastically perfect before them. This isn't a statement to gaze at the positive, loving God moment. This verse 10 here, be still, is instead a call from the prophet or the psalmist to the unbeliever. He's first invited the believer to come witness and behold the works of God, and now he's inviting the unbeliever. Come, look at what I've done. Look what your battle against me has wrought. That's what God is saying here. Be still. Stop trying to battle against me. Stop warring with me from the side of Satan. 
Like, don't you know that I've already won and I hold the power in my hand? This is what God is saying to the unbeliever. Read further. I will be exalted among the nations. And what he means here, the word nations, we've used, is, it's been used a few times here. It's used in Psalm 2. It means the ungodly nations and the heathens. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is making a proclamation of total and utter victory here. There is no victory found in anyone else but him, and all praise and glory are due his name. Like This is God's victory here. But let's not be fooled either, believers. There is, there is wisdom for us to heed here. This is also a call for us not to boast in ourselves. Like, be still, believer. Just like we saw in Exodus, we need nothing more than to do but be silent. Stop trying to move first without pleading to our Lord for his grace and mercy. Like, be still and recognize that he is God alone, the mighty Yahweh of armies. We are the created, and he is the creator. Let's not mix that up. And then poetically, as a final reminder to us, the psalmist reminds us of the character of God once more. He, he reuses this verse as, as a base of a chorus to a song. He utters a final reminder to us that God is the commander of all of heaven's armies and that he is also the loving father that we need. He is ready to go to battle for us and he is ready to nurture and care and love for us. And then at last, a final selah of reflection. So church, where are we at? Like, where are you personally with the Lord? Reflect on that. Are you living in constant fear of life? Are you stricken by what's around you, what's surrounding you? Are you terrified at sharing the gospel of our Lord God because of what someone might say to you or how they might reject you? Like, are you seeking refuge in worldly things that will always let you down, or are you seeking comfort in our refuge and strength? Do you recognize the awesome and terrifying power that is in the Lord of hosts? Do you run to him like a father in your hour of deepest need? And do you draw your spouse to him and set their eyes on him? Do you draw your children to him and set their eyes on him? Do you grab your brother and sister and set their eyes on him? Do we behold the mighty works of the Lord and revere him as we should? Do we do all of this? I, I also want to be very clear here. I've preached before on, on fearing the Lord, having a, a reverent fear of him, and it is good because this reverent fear of him, this fear of him uh, annihilates. I heard a quote of it this morning on the radio. The fear of God annihilates all other fears. But here I'm preaching that we should not fear. And I mean it. We should not live our lives in fear. 
we do not need to fear. And it says we won't fear. We're commanded not to live in fear. But realistically, we, what this, this doesn't mean that we will not ever experience fear. Let's be real. And as Calvin says in his commentary, I'm going to pull this directly from him. When, however, the sacred poet says we will not fear, he is not to be understood as meaning that the minds of the godly are exempt from all solicitude or fear, as if they were destitute of feeling. For there is a great difference between insensibility and the confidence of faith. So there's a big difference there of living in fear and fearing God and confidence of him. He only shows that whatever may happen, they are never overwhelmed with terror, but rather gather strength and courage sufficient to allay all fear. So church, when you find yourself wanting, turn to him. When you feel overwhelmed, like your world has been turned upside down, like turn to God. And if you haven't confessed a faith in him, now is the time to do it today. Today we are going to be partaking in the elements and, and the ushers are going to come hand them out during the song that we sing here. Take this time to pray, to confess your sins before our holy God, our Lord of hosts and our God of Jacob. For he is just and he is ready to forgive. If you haven't done this, don't, don't take the elements if you're not a believer, don't take the elements. Approach his table uh, in a worthy manner. If there's unconfessed sin, the elements are not for you. Make things right. If it's between a believer and yourself, make things right. Between the Lord and yourself, make things right. Um, church, I, I truly thank you for this opportunity uh, to preach before you today this 46th Psalm. Thank you.